to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow, and this is the show that helps you punch above your weight when you negotiate the sale of your company. And today's edition is a unique one. It's called Built to Sell Intel, where I break down four previous episodes of Built to Sell Radio and try to draw out the transferable lessons for you, the things that struck me in doing the interviews that I think you could take away and learn and put to good use. So this is four stories. And it's also an opportunity for you to ask questions. We do this live. And so if you're listening to this on the recorded version, there's an opportunity to actually join live. And when you join live, you can ask your own questions. So if you want to join live next time, all you need to do is opt in at builttosell.com. There's a little button that says free gifts, download those, and you'll be automatically invited to each of our upcoming editions of Built to Sell Intel. You can join the live studio audience, ask whatever questions you have, and uh, that's a big part of the show for us. So I hope you will join us over at builttosell.com. Just opt in and we'll get you an invite for the next episode. But right now, I'm going to pass you over to my colleague, Jeremy Weiss, who is going to take us through as the host of Built to Sell Intel. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Intel. I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Jeremy Weiss. Jeremy, take it away. I'm excited. And if you haven't listened to these, you should go back and listen to all the Built to Sell Intel because we recap some of the biggest takeaways from Built to Sell Radio. And, you know, John asked the questions, but in this one, he gets to overlay his thoughts and advice on the episodes. And if you don't know John, John Worlow is the founder of the Value Builder System, which is a practice management software that helps business advisors automate their processes to win and keep the best clients. And the Value Builder System incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score. It's offered by a global network of certified Value Builders advisors. And, And John, I always like to say, the businesses that achieve a Value Builder Score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. And you can go to builttosell.com and actually take your value builder score on their website. He also has the best-selling book, Built to Sell. There's many people who come on, John, that go, I sold my business. I remember reading your book to help prepare, get build the value of my business, and then eventually sell. So it so was cool. recognized by Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books. And he's also, obviously, you can listen to uh, Built to Sell Radio. He also has a book, The Automatic Customer and The Art of Selling Your Business, and check that out. Um, I also want to point people to, so builttosell.com slash radio. You could also go to builttosell.com slash SOP to get an SOP ebook. So I want to start with the episode with Ben Kelly. And Ben Kelly um, kind of went from Elon Musk to exit, and he got first his first person I've ever spoken to who actually works for Elon Musk. I think yeah. this is a pretty cool story. I felt like he treaded lightly on that. Um, you yeah, know, I, I asked him at one point, did you, did you hear what I said? Like, what's it like to work with Elon Musk? And he, what was his response? He said something like, uh, something. let's just say he gets the most out of his employees or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Um, so he left SpaceX to start the launch company uh, where they supply hardware parts and consulting to a growing list of new aerospace companies like SpaceX. So in less than five years after starting, they were approached by Voyager Space, a private equity-backed group, uh, and he sold a majority stake in the launch company. And um, he also, I think, was living in Alaska in general. So what did you like about Ben's story? Oh, a bunch of stuff. So, I mean, one of the things I thought was really cool, and we should just let people know, Jeremy, uh, since we're doing the live episode, we've got a bunch of people who have joined. I can see all their names. Hi to everybody. If you have a question you want to ask about any of the episodes, drop it into the GoToWebinar control panel on the questions tab, and we'll endeavor to get those answered along the way. If you're listening to this on the podcast version, make sure you join the live version because uh, that'll give you a chance to ask any questions that you have. Just go to builttocell.com and opt in, and you will be invited to the live version. Ben was cool. So, yeah, so a couple of things about the Ben story that, that struck me. You know, he's in the space industry, which is obviously very expensive. That's probably the understatement of the world to get into. And he started his business for like $1,200. He left SpaceX, had a bunch of student debt from getting a you know a bunch of degrees in engineering. 
And so he started the launch company with $1,200 and didn't have a lot of money, obviously, to finance any sort of product that he he could build. And so what he did was offer consulting. And he went all, you know, there's a lot of emerging space companies that are that are that are kind of coming on stream, obviously SpaceX, um, you know, the the the, the uh, Jeff Bezos one, the Richard Branson one. There's there's a ton of them that are kind of emerging. And he, so he started offering consulting, selling his time. What he did, which was really cool, and what I would recommend anybody do that that is trying to bootstrap a product company to get to a cons- to to effectively get enough cash to to launch is he retained the IP for his consulting. So he said, sure, you can hire me as your consultant, but whatever we develop collectively, I got to own. And that was one of the kind of keys. He took the what he learned from doing this quick disconnect product for one of his customers and basically retained the IP and then sold it to all the other space companies he was working with. And that's one of the things that uh, that I thought was was kind of novel and enabled him to to kind of build up his business without necessarily selling a lot of equity uh, or or finding other ways to finance it. Yeah, I love it. It seemed like he listened to his customers along the way. They were asking for some, you know, solutions and also hardware. It seems like hardware would be a tough space to do. You know. <laughs> Exactly right. And again, I think every service business wants to be a hardware business or every service business wants to be a product business. The challenge is like, how do you get the money to go build the product uh, to test it, design it? It's, it's obviously prohibitively expensive for a lot of folks. So he found a way to thread the needle. And he said, look, I'm going to retain the rights to the IP. Uh, I will do the consulting on an hourly, daily basis or whatever. But at the end, the product we come up with, I, I get to own. And not all clients are going to agree with that. But I asked Ben, like, how many of your customers agreed to that? He said, look, we were in a hot space, so they didn't have a lot of choice. And so I was able to retain that. So it's not possible, I think, in all your agreements. But there's a, you know, a, a, a very famous old ancient example now where Bill Gates was hired by IBM. And the deal was he would effectively build the first version of Windows for IBM. But he retained the rights to the IP. And so, I mean, there is a history here of, of folks doing that. The other thing that I, I think was was really novel about Ben is, is he's a young guy, as you, as you point out, he's very proud Alaskan and has a young family. And he got to a point about a few years after starting the launch company where he kind of wanted to solidify his financial position. Again, he had a bunch of student debt from, he, he took two engineering degrees. Uh, he you know, he, he wanted to solidify where his family was at. And so he sold, I think it was 60% of his company. After I spoke with him, it was a 60-40 deal, like 40% he retained. It was acquired by a private equity group. Now, private equity has, there's, you know, lots of challenges associated with selling to private equity. And I've done more than my share of, you know, (laughs) layering on the negativity on the show. But what I do think is really important for folks to know is that if you're feeling that just uneasy about how much of your net worth is tied up in your business, these deals can make a lot of sense. Basically, the deal was we're going to buy 60% of your company and you're going to roll your 40% equity into a new entity that you're going to have shares in. So you get to put some money in your genes. Uh, he effectively kind of solidified his family's financial situation. He probably won't ever have to work again or certainly will have that choice for, for many years to come. But he's also got skin in the game. He's still a young guy, so he's still, you know, got 40% of his equity in shares. And so I think for him, just given his life stage, that was a, that was a neat option. So I think that was that was the other thing. And the, the third thing that I took away from Ben Kelly was just his humility around not being a manager. You know, he reached, I think, Jeremy, you remember, was it about a dozen employees? Yeah, about, it was about yeah, that. But, yeah, about 12 companies. So this is not... This is not Tesla, right? This is not a huge. It was company. surprisingly low amount for a hardware launch company for for uh, aerospace. Yeah, I was blown away. I'm like, twelve guys in an Alaskan, you know, <laughs> barn or hangar somewhere, and and you built this company, and that's exactly what he did. What I think he was really humble about is acknowledging that he he is not a manager at scale. Right. And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, very few entrepreneurs really are. You know, we could all point to examples, uh, you know, Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, people that have 
both started companies and been able to build them into significant enterprises with tens of thousands of employees. In Amazon's case, millions of employees. That's rare. I, I think many more yeah. entrepreneurs that I've seen, I know, Jeremy, you've interviewed a ton as well. They're, they're really good at the starting phase and, and maybe up to 10 or 20 kind of folks. But there is a point where, you know, you have to shift from entrepreneurial, figure it out as you go to kind of more formalized management. And that's not for everybody. And I think Ben had the humility to say, I'm out. Like, that's, I don't want to do that. That's not what gets me out of bed in, in, in the morning. And I think some of us go beyond that point where our sell-by date is, is beyond us, where, you know, we're, we're, we're beyond our point of, of sort of being effective in, in, in what we do. And I think, I think Ben had at least the humility to pull up and say, you know, I'm out. I, I, I'm beyond that point. Um, I have a question on that. If people have questions, please put them in the chat. We will get to them. But um, piggybacking off that, John, you mentioned the private equity. Uh, what are some things people should watch out for when working with private equity or thinking to be purchased by private equity? Yeah, I think you first of all just have to be really sober-minded about what private equity does. Private equity is a financial organization, typically. They've got investors who are looking to get a return. And so to get that return, they effectively need to put a little capital at risk and get as big a reward as possible. And so how do they do that? Well, they first of all aren't generally going to buy 100% of your company. They're going to buy a, a slice of your company. Hope in many cases the majority of it, but they're going to leave and get you to leave enough in so it hurts. In Ben's case, I think it was 40%. So that you're not going to want to walk away from that because they don't have generally management teams in place. They're going to they're going to uh, ask you to continue to run your company. And so then you're a you're effectively at their mercy, if you will. You've got enough of your equity in the business that you don't want to walk away from it, yet you don't control the company anymore. And so I think you really have to be really sober-minded about what it is they're trying to do and where they see the synergies. Like they're going to, you're go, you have to assume that they see something that you don't see or they wouldn't want to buy your business, right? They, they see some way to make it more valuable in their hands. So either they think you're doing a crappy job of running it today, which is, I think, the minority of cases. The majority of time, they think that by stitching you together with other businesses, they can take advantage of some synergy. So the question would be like, what do you see as the upside? Like, what's the play for you? And and listen for, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to gut your staff because we think you're a bloated company. Well, that's probably not a deal you want to do, right? Or, you know, we, we want to buy three other companies like yours and take advantage of economies of scale. That might be a better story. But but you, I think you just have to be really clear-eyed about, like, what is their, their, their business case? They're not buying your business to hold it for 50 years. They're buying your business to flip it effectively in five to seven years, usually. And so you, you need to understand what's their, their effectively investment thesis, which is kind of fancy talk for like, why are you doing this? I love that. So they then people will have that conversation with them in that courting phase to kind of find out. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. wh where's the synergies here? Where's the strategic value you're trying to unlock? Uh, why is it that you're going to you know buy my company for, let me just throw out a number, five times EBITDA? Like, what do you think you can sell the entity for downstream? Oh, you think you can sell for 10 times EBITDA? Well, how are you going to get double the multiple, like why would it be worth mm -hmm. twice in your hands? Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to make it bigger. Okay, how are you going to make it bigger? Well, we're going to stitch you together with other companies. Well, will that make you know? Will that dilute my you know shareholding, et cetera? Will I have to work with those other owners? And who's going to stay on? Like, there's all these questions you want to ask if you're really trying to get clear on like what do they see as the play, right? Because yeah. they're not buying you for five times earnings to go sell you for five times earnings. Let's be clear, they're buying you for five because they want to sell you for 10, 12, 14 down the road. So you, you need to say, well, what is this that you are going to do to make my company worth not five times, but 10 or 12 times? And, and that's a really, I think, important question to get underneath. Yeah. And, you know, the next interview we're going to talk about, Josh Delaney, actually, he talks about that in the interview and touches on that. So definitely watch that. Before we get to Josh, um, a question from Jack. Um, and Jack, and again, put your questions in the chat so we can answer them. Jack says, if I want to sell in about two years, what are the most important things now I should do to maximize my value? 
Two years is an interesting time frame because it's really not enough time to change and revolutionize your business model, right? Like I could say stuff like, oh, you should create a recurring revenue stream or, you know, you should make sure you're growing. Those things take time to bed in. First of all, you got to design them or, you know, and it takes time. So I think, Jack, in your case, uh, you know, you probably want to stick with your existing business model, uh, but you may want to start to fine tune uh, some of the things that that you're doing today. So obviously, if you're involved in doing any of the selling still, Jack, you're going to want to necessarily pull yourself out of that, hire a sales manager, hire sales reps, et cetera. It's usually the rainmaker job that is that is most business owners get sucked into, which you've got to find other people to get to do the work. So I think it's enough time for you to train a sales manager, bring them in so that, that, that they're running uh, at least the sales organization. Uh, you're going to want to think about how you position your company, Jax. Again, what I've seen is that acquirers will typically have uh, shortcuts. They'll, they'll have an investment mandate and they'll use shortcuts to find companies like that. So they'll say, oftentimes private equity companies, they'll say, okay, in the case of Ben, they were rolling up space companies. So if Ben had rolled, you know, held himself out there as a engineering consulting company, they would have completely missed him, right? Because private equity companies use Google just like the rest of us, and they're Googling, well, who are the space companies out there? And so again, Ben made the strategic decision, that even though he was effectively an engineer for hire by the hour, by the day, a, you know, a simple consultancy, he called himself the launch company and focused on aerospace and space in general. And that got him on the radar screen of the private equities company. So Jack, for you, I'd be asking myself, like, in your sort of general industry, what are the types of companies that are being acquired? And then make sure you sound like that in your public facing statement. So your website, your, uh, you know, your storefronts, your signage, you know, all that stuff, you want to sound like a company that they would mm -hmm. want to buy. And again, yeah. some of those, those semantics sound superficial, but I think they're yeah. really important when it comes to like a two-year time horizon. Yeah, no, I love that to like sure up the positioning because that's going to be huge when it comes to someone looking at you. The next one, John, was Josh Delaney. And Josh Delaney um, started FABCBD, which is CBD e-tailer. And he was kind of early to the game. It was in 2017. And uh, actually his mom was his first customer. And by 2020, through a combination of marketing and uh, you know the uptick of CBD and that industry, he rose to more than $10 million in annual sales. And in early 2021, he high um, was in discussion with High Tide, which is a Calgary-based cannabis company, offered him 13 million in cash and 8 million uh, in high tide shares um, in return for 80%. So. I'd love to hear what you liked about Josh Delaney's story. I don't know what it says about Josh that his mom's so stressed out that she has to be his first customer. customer. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it up, Josh may have been a tough chore. I'm exactly. kidding. CBD oil, of course, is the derivative of the marijuana plant. I, I think it's supposed to make you relaxed, it's, but it doesn't have the narcotic effect of. It doesn't have THC think, typically. Yeah, I think that's maybe. That's the yes. It's at least that's what my buddy told me. Um, <laughs> and I think it's an interesting story. Uh, one of the things I took away personally was a real education in, in affiliate marketing, which Josh is an absolute expert in. Affiliate marketing is, you know, is when you it, when you find an influencer or someone with, a, with an audience, a blogger, a, you know, a, whatever, a, a social media uh, influencer, and say, look, I'll give you a, a piece of the action here if you promote my product. And in Josh's case, he had a very high margin product, which was really good because it enabled him to pay rich incentives to his affiliates. And so the way he described it to me on the show was that there are sort of two types of affiliates. One are, are sort of one-time payments and the others are evergreen. And there's a, there's a word that I've forgotten the name of it. You might recall, Jeremy, but it's, it's, it's the lingo in the affiliate marketing space. But effectively, it's evergreen versus one-time. And, you know, he was describing that in some cases, you know, you could pay your affiliates more than 100% of the total order value of the first order because what you're getting obviously is the customer information and the tail. And for folks who use CBD oil on a regular basis, obviously they're not buying it once, they're buying it regularly. And so you, you could have a situation where you would pay such a high bounty 
to that affiliate that it would actually exceed the entire order value. Um, the other side is where you, you kind of become more partners with your affiliates and say, look, we're going to pay you a smaller percentage, 10, 20, 30, 40%, depending on your margins, but we're going to do that forever. So as long as that customer buys from us, we are going to continue to share. So uh, and that's the model that, that Josh used. Again, uh, that was his decision for a lot of reasons. And again, part of it was that, that the, the revenue was a tail and they wanted to partner with their affiliates and have that kind of close relationship. Um, but it was a real education for me in affiliate marketing, which I did not know much about. And, and he really demystified it for me. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because he was really generous. I mean, they gave him a portion of the, the first sale and then all ongoing a percentage of all ongoing sales. So if I'm an affiliate, I'm like, cool, I'm going to keep promoting this because after that first sale, I don't have to do anything. The company handles everything, but they know that builds that long-term collaboration. So I'm going to you know, keep promoting that company. Yeah, and look, Josh made the point that you know the, your reputation is everything in this space. The affiliate marketing space is is very very small. You know, your your reputation gets around if you don't pay commissions or you're you're late or you're whatever. It, it is very easy to get kind of caught out. So he wanted to be very above board and really be one of the gold standard people to to partner with in the affiliate space. So that was good, and it also really, I mean. Josh is a, is a marketing savant. I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. And so uh, he was able to grow this business very, very quickly. And, you know, as we know, one of the big drivers of the value of your company is your growth potential, like how quickly you have been growing in the past. And even more importantly, to some extent, is, is like how quickly does your acquirer think you could grow in the future? And affiliate marketing is one of those, like turning on a tap, it is very effective when you do it right, if people have a loyal audience. So I think he did some great stuff. I think there's a couple things in the deal mechanics that are really interesting in, in Josh's story. One is that he took about 40% of his proceeds in, company, in the stock of his acquirer. And so, you know, that can be a dangerous play, uh, but I think Josh went in with his eye. I mean, he's, again, he's a very savvy guy, so he went in with his eyes wide open. For folks who are listening to this who may be thinking about taking some stock in return for their equity stock in their acquiring company, you know, uh, there's a few things to think about. Obviously, the key question is, well, what's the liquidity of that stock? Uh, do you have the rights to sell it? And you know, is it a public traded stock, for example, or is it a privately held stock? Well, if it's a privately held stock, you're getting the minority in a privately held business. It's really not liquid and it's very difficult to ever sell unless you have a put option. And that's one of the things that Josh included in his deal, even though High Tide was a publicly traded company, he had a put option. What is a put option? A put option is where you have the rights to effectively put your shares onto the acquirer at a predetermined price. And so you can say, look, I'll hold, in Josh's case, he, he said, look, I'll hold 20% of the equity in this deal. So he, he decided to hold 20% of the shares, but he negotiated a put option, which is like, if I ever really want to just pull the trigger and get out completely, we agree up front that this is the price that I, I can put my shares onto you and you are obligated. You don't have the rights to, but you are obligated to buy them. That's a put option. It's different than a stock option. It's a put option, if you will. And that's what he negotiated. And again, talk to your, I'm not a lawyer, so talk to your lawyer. But if you want to execute on any of this stuff, don't take my advice as legal advice. But I think that was a really interesting kind of uh, interesting way to structure a, you know, a stock deal. The other thing that I would, I would sort of caution you around is that when you sell your company and you take stock, obviously you don't control that company anymore. And, and that can be uncomfortable for a lot of entrepreneurs who, let's be honest, many of us are control freaks, right? I would put myself in that camp, so I say that in a loving way, but we, we wanna control everything. And so when you don't control the price of your stock, it can be very unnerving. Like in the case of Josh, I, I just looked it up before this call because I, I wanted to make this point. Um, high tide stock in the case in the time that he's owned it about a year it started i think it was around five bucks a share when when he accepted 40 percent of his stock his shares for for that it went all the way up to 15 dollars a share so effectively tripling the value of that tranche of his equity right in in july or june or july and, and now it's back down to five dollars a share and I don't know if he had the foresight to sell or 15. I, I really have no idea. Or if he had the rights to it. That's, yeah. yeah, that's kind of beyond the, 
the, the point. The point is these things kind of can gyrate, especially if you have a small uh, company. And so one of the things that Josh wanted to make sure when I pushed him on this, I said, why did you take so much of your deal in stock? Wasn't it? He said, one of the things I made sure of is that the trading volume of that stock was high enough that I could sell without tanking the stock. And when you've got a very thinly traded stock, in other words, the trading volume is very, very low, and you're a significant shareholder, and you rock up one day and say, you know what, I want to sell my shares. The fact that you want to sell your shares in and of itself will drop the price of the share if the trading volume is very, very thin. So that's another thing to look out for if you're thinking of taking stock in a publicly traded company in return for your company or a portion of your company, figure out the trading volume and make sure that when you sell those shares, just the fact that you're selling isn't going to tank the stock. Yeah, I mean, John, you mentioned in the last um, interview we were talking about, you know, Josh really believed in the trajectory and the philosophy and the strategy to growing the company. And so he, I think for that 40%, he was like, like very optimistic of the way where they bought him for X. He kept mentioning throughout, like, this was super fair. This was really fair. He kept mentioning fair that, he saw, well, they're buying me for X, but their stock is worth X amount of times that as soon as they buy me anyways. Yeah, there's the, the kind of accretive piece of this. And again, accretive uh, deals are where the publicly traded stock is trading at uh, X multiple and you are trading at a percentage of that multiple. Let's say for just round numbers, you have a publicly traded stock that is trading at, at, at 20 times EBITDA, as an example and they buy you for 10 times EBITDA. Well, they can effectively graft your profitability onto their P&L the next quarter they report, and all of a sudden, in their hands, your profitability is worth 20 times EBITDA. So right. they kind of can't lose in that situation. If your profitability is stable and buying you isn't going to call into question their overall valuation, which is unlikely unless you're a massive company, you know, they, they just basically graph your profitability onto their P&L and they get a lift if they buy you for a lower multiple than they're trading at. And and that's another thing that Josh took advantage yeah. of. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out because I thought that was fascinating. Like, it's a no-brainer for that company to purchase. It's right. also a no-brainer for lose. Josh. It's a win-win. Um, yeah. So put your questions in the chat. You know, um, I'm going to ask Susan's question. And Susan asks, what are some mistakes that people make uh, and what is the best way to structure an earnout? Oh, Susan, uh, you should listen to the next episode because uh, our next story, the third of four today, is with Prantik Mazumbar, and he talks a lot about earnout. So, I um, I I don't want to steal his thunder. The you know when you're structuring an earnout, Susan, the you know the the what you want to make sure is that achieving your goal is in your control effectively. So the classic way earnouts are structured are that you will get some of your money up front and then a portion of it paid over time tied to the future profitability of your company. The challenge with profit as a a, a metric is that it can be interpreted. It's subjective, believe it or not, by accountants, and you don't control their interpretation of profit, right? So when you sell to a big company with its own accounting department, they get to decide how they want to interpret your profitability. And, and there's very little control, unless you contemplate that in your share purchase agreement, it's very little control you have over profitability. And so, uh, Susan, I would I just encourage you to think about if there's other ways, other metrics you could tie your earnout to, like even revenue is more objective you know it's it's hard to argue if you were achieved a revenue threshold so susan i don't know what industry you're in but if you can tie it more to revenue or, or top line that that might give you just a little bit more control i see. hope that helps yeah so if it's like tied to profit and if the company decides to take on a bunch of expenses you have no control over that situation so yeah i love that yeah um, so let's talk about Prantik. Prantik and his business partner built Happy Marketer, which is a digital, digital marketing agency to more than $10 million in annual revenue before they decided to sell to Dentsu. And um, they agreed to sell for around seven times EBITDA, 40% uh, of which was paid up front with the remainder available in a four-year earnout tied to the future profitability of Happy Marketer. Uh, what did you like about 
Prontix story. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about the earnout because, uh, because Susan raised the question and I think it's a good one. It's one of the points I was going to make anyways. Yeah. So, so this was a digital marketing agency. And if you know anything about marketing services companies, they typically sell with a, with a pretty big portion of the deal in an earnout. So this was not unique. Again, 40% paid up front, 60% tied to a four year earnout. And again, a lot of people hear that and think, oh my gosh, like, like I would never sign up for that. And if that's where you want to, you know, be, you, you really need to structure your agency or your marketing services businesses so that it can really run completely independent of you. Standard operating procedures are going to be a big part of that. There's an, a Built to Sell Radio episode with Jody Cook, who you might like to look, Google, just Google uh, built to sell radio, Jody Cook, and you'll hear how she structured her agency so that she was able to get out without an earnout. But it's it's really rare, and and it's going to mean that you you've got to basically create these standard operating procedures. Um, that's one of the reasons we wrote the ebook, by the way, is to is to give people a sense of how you can create these standard operating procedures. But it's 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 still going to be tough, I think, in marketing services. So Prontique's um, experience, where 40% of his shares were paid up for up front, and then 60% are tied to an earnout, I think is 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 pretty normal. One of the things that Prontique did a great job of, though, and this goes back to Susan's question, is he negotiated the cost structure that he was signing up for up front and so he went into this deal with his eyes wide open and said look i i don't want you guys to graft your fancy office space your you know your all of the the kind of bloat that you have as a big company he was bought by Dentsu, one of the largest advertising holding companies in the world i don't want you to start grafting those expenses onto my profit and loss statement and so he negotiated his cost structure you know everything Everything down to like what he was, you know, going to pay for office space. You know, uh, you know, salaries were in his discretion. Um, the software that they used, he all he went down to that line item, saying like, this is what we're going to pay for each of these different things. So he he kind of locked in his cost structure. And so again, uh, if you are having to sign up for an earnout, which again is almost always the case in a marketing services business, most services business in general. Um, I, I just want you to think about how you might maximize your control of that. One way to do it is through tying it to top line revenue because it's less subjective. Another way is to negotiate upfront your cost structure. And so you're, you've got you know, a hard cap on what you can be charged for certain sort of internal expenses, if you will. So that's, um, that's one thing I took away from from Pronti. The other one, Jeremy, was was back to your introductory points. They, you know, he talks about Pronti did a great job talking about optics and and why optics matter when you go to sell your company. And we talked about this with Ben Kelly as well. The first example where you know positioning himself as a as a as a sort of space company helped him attract the attention of a private equity company. In much the same way, Pronti really wanted to avoid the discount in valuation associated with a typical, you know, marketing services company that's focused on execution, which in in their space can be pretty low multiples. Like if all you're doing is, you know, writing email copy and creating brochures and 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 doing the kind of you know basic tactical stuff associated with marketing, you know, it's not uncommon for your valuation to be sort of three, four times EBITDA. Yet what he was also doing was consulting, similar to like an Accenture where they were doing like digital transformation strategies. And, and that business is much more highly valued. You know, that could be, um, you know, seven or eight times profitability. He was also reselling, you know, Google Analytics software and, and some of the training associated with that, which again, attracts a larger multiple. So, so they, you know, I think, I think in the case of the software business, he figured they could get maybe 10 times EBITDA. I uh, think the training business, he was kind of benchmarking around seven to eight times EBITDA and the marketing execution business, which they still did some of, he was thinking kind of three to four. And so we wanted to make sure that when he went to market, he wasn't being discounted for, as a disc, as, a, as an execution company. And so they, they, they went hard in positioning themselves as a digital agency driven by data. And, you know, and again, you know, the, the common stereotype a lot of people have when you think of like a marketing agency is like, you know, Mad Men where you go out for like three martini lunches and you buy TV advertising. And so he was really desperate to say, no, no, we are not that kind of agency. We are 
heavily data driven. Uh, you're more likely to find our employees with a science degree than you would be an arts degree. You're more likely to find them taking math than you would English. Uh, and 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 so he was very focused on being a digital agency driven by data. And they positioned him that way and, and ultimately got seven times EBITDA. So sort of the higher end of of what you would expect given uh, given the, the kind of messaging. So that, that was also really important, the way they kind of pivoted to that that messaging. What stuck out for me, you talked a lot about in the interview about them leveraging bigger names for credibility mm. and attractiveness. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit as well. I mean, I think Google, there was one other one that they really yeah, yeah. had a collaboration with. Yeah, Boston Consulting Group. Yeah, I mean, look, look when you're a small company, when you are... Uh, you know, in, in Happy Marketers' case, they were they were startup, right? They ultimately got to 10 million in revenue, but they were in the early days. It was just uh, two guys and a and a laptop kind of thing. It was it was not a, a significant business, and so they borrowed the brand equity in their partners heavily. So they uh, they partnered with both Google, uh, being a Google Analytics reseller, as well as Boston Consulting Group. Boston Consulting Group, they were based in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and so they they wanted a presence. Boston Consulting Group wanted a presence there, and so they became effectively Boston Consulting Group's partner in Southeast Asia. Well, that has gravitas, right? That has brand equity. There's a halo effect of you know be able to say to the marketplace, including acquirers, look, we have strategic partnerships with Boston Consulting Group, which is a you know, a very prestigious brand among some, uh, some people's eyes, as well as Google. And so they enabled themselves to sort of punch well above their weight from a brand perspective by partnering. And and again, those partnerships were were not sort of the back of the closet things they talked about only if asked. They were very prominent things, right? Like they were on their website. They talked about them in meetings with customers and potential investors. Like it was a it was a big part of how they how they looked bigger than they are. So those partners you have can be assets, I think, in uh, in positioning your company as being more substantial, uh, bigger than than perhaps you are. The other thing Prantik talked about is being acquisition ready, which I thought was kind of cool. He, um, you know, and, and this goes back to what we've seen as the two most common reasons business owners sell their company or the, the two most common triggering effects, if, it, if it, like the triggers the business owners uh, 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 that trigger them to sell their company. One is a health event. Right, so they they have some sort of uh, medical emergency, either themselves or their spouse or a loved one, and and they literally can't work or or like their mind is completely elsewhere, and so they they must sell effectively. Uh, so that's one, and the second is that they are proactively approached by a potential acquirer, and and this is happening obviously for a lot of our listeners more and more these days because, of course, it's a very liquid M and A market, lots of private equity companies you know, rolling up businesses, and so they're getting approached much more. What I find interesting about both of those scenarios, uh, either a medical event or you know being approached by an acquirer, is that in both cases you're on your back foot. In both cases, you're reacting to something else as opposed to proactively positioning your company for sale, which is where I think you, you have the most negotiating leverage and the best outcomes. You're sort of reacting to something. And that happened to Prantik Mazumbar. In his case, Happy Marketer was approached by Dentsu, and they approached them early in their business. And to uh, Prantik's credit, he said, look, we're just not ready. And 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 he said, look, we, there are certain things we want to get done before we sell. And, and one of them was to reach $10 million in revenue because they knew that would give them a bit of a bump in valuation. They wanted to reach 50 employees um, and they wanted to have solidified these two partnerships with BCG and Google. And, and they deemed those three things as prerequisites for an acquisition. And, and it wasn't until they got those three things accomplished that they circled back to Dentsu and said, okay, now I think we're ready. But I think it's just worth remembering for anybody listening, um, you know, the most likely scenario that's going to trigger you to think about selling it is actually something that you don't control. It's either being, being acquired or some sort of medical event. And the more you can get ready in advance of that happening, uh, the better. I mean, I don't mean to be morbid, but we're recording this in this horrible uptick in COVID, the OM. My, my wife calls it Omegatron because she's so sick of it, but Omicron, uh, 
And 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 I think I, I haven't got it yet. I'm just waiting for, for that day to come. But I'm trying to think about all the things I could do now to kind of get ready. It was like stock up the medicine cabinet with Tylenol and, you know, like make sure I've got everything sort of ducks in a row for when it comes, right? Hopefully it never comes, but I'm sure it will. Same way for you preparing your business, right? Like if if you can get your ducks in a row now so that when that happy event, event comes where your big strategic, you know, acquire approaches you and say, okay, we want to buy you, you're, you're ready. You don't have to scramble for six months to kind of get ready. So I think that was another, you know, cool takeaway for, for me on, on Prontique story. Yeah. I mean, John, in general, I think humans are motivated more by pain than pleasure. So thinking of that morbid scenario, is going to light up more of a fuel as opposed to sitting on the beach. So I, I don't think that's a, I, I like that way of thinking if it moves someone into action to put the things in place they should be doing anyways, right? Um, so questions from people. We have a question uh, from Malcolm. And uh, he said, if I'm only a 30-person company, have a flat organization, what senior leadership should I have in place to make it most attractive to a buyer? as well as obviously efficiently to run the business. Uh, yeah, Malcolm, great question. So, you know, you're, you're going to want to have, you're going to want to be able to make a case to an acquirer uh, that your company can thrive without you personally doing the work. And so uh, that's easy for me to say and hard for you to do. Ideally, you've got somebody else driving the business top line. So you've got someone in charge of sort of sales, business development, you know, that that piece, if you're a direct to consumer, you know, marketing is probably going to be that role for you, like demand gen. If you're a business to business, it's going to be likely sales or business development. So having somebody who you can credibly hold up to an acquirer saying this person is is really responsible for our top line revenue. That's going to be, I think, a key hire for you. Equally Someone that can do build the product, I think, is another kind of key hire. So again, in a service business, that's probably like a head of customer success or a head of delivery in a consulting company, but but effectively the person who's responsible for the end product. And again, in a service business, I don't mean product as in touch and feel, but product as in like what customers get. So having someone sort of oversee that, I think, is 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 a really good piece. The the the, the one functional area that you can probably afford to skimp on. Is finance, and and I don't mean skimp on in the sense of not doing good bookkeeping because you're going to want to have good bookkeeping, but you can probably outsource that. You could probably bring in a fractional CFO or partner with a good accounting firm that can really sort of solidify your books. Um, you know, realistically, most acquirers have decent chops when it comes to finance, and they're probably going to eliminate your. CFO if you go hire one. They're probably not going to keep him or her in the role that they are in today. And so that's the one functional area. If you're, if you're, you know, Malcolm, if you're sort of, I think you said in your question, you're a couple, couple of years away from selling. That's the one area that I probably would not invest heavily in. I would, uh, in, in a full-time person, I would, I would instead invest heavily in sort of a fractional CFO accountant. Somebody could be that person, but know that like once an acquirer comes in, they're probably going to blow that person out anyways. So it's better to have that person on contract, I think. But someone over business development, someone over like product delivery or design, I think is another kind of kind of key hire. And then the third role, you know, if you can do it, is to bring in a, a president, a 2IC, a second in command, a general manager, someone who can really make sure the trains are running on time, uh, integrating the various kind of functional areas of your company, that's gonna give an acquirer a, a high degree of confidence that this business is gonna keep going. And, and you may find that while they may want you to keep some equity in the business, uh, you may be able to minimize that if you've got a president or a chief operating officer and, and, and you can say, look, you know, this, you know, you need to incentivize the president of the company with some additional stock options or shares or some sort of equity. Um, but you don't really need me around anymore. And and so that happened. Um, we did an episode. There's a great episode. Uh, the gentleman's name is, is, uh, is escaping me right now. It'll come to me. But it's built to sell radio and the company is Dimple. And uh, they brought in a 2IC and uh, sold the business quickly thereafter, in part because the 2IC, the second in command, was was so... Uh, was so good. So again, you can you can 
Google built cell radio dimple D I M P L E. And, uh, that episode should pop right up. It was Damien James. Damien James. Thanks. I'm getting old, man. I can't remember these names. Well, I anymore. looked it up on the site as you were talking. So, uh, you were cheating, yeah, so. I'm not taking credit for remembering that, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, thank you. That's really valuable. And, and it kind of goes into the next conversation with John Clayton, because you talked about the morbid reason and there was some health stuff going on for John, yeah. which kind of, preempted him to look at selling and he started streamline marketing to help brands manage their affiliate programs um taking full full circle with josh but he bootstrapped his business around 30 employees he avoided hiring some senior roles in favor of doing a lot of the work himself but he had a lean approach so the business had 50 percent even a margins um but it obviously he was working a lot and uh he had a shingles diagnosis ended up in the hospital one of the things he'd shingle, most people think of shingles around their rib cage. He had it in his throat. And if anyone, I mean, I've not had it luckily, but I've heard it's really, really painful. And I can't imagine having it in my throat because then you, it's hard to breathe. And so he ended up in the hospital and he, it was, he was stressed out. So talk about a little bit, John, about what did you like about John's story? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a very dramatic story um, because he's such a young guy, 35 years old, and the stress of running his company the way he was running it, uh, you know, brought on this shingles diagnosis and ultimately it, that, that led to his throat. And you're right, it, it, his throat began to close and, and, and it became a life-threatening situation. And he was uh, he was treated in hospital and eventually it was in hospital that he realized like something's got to give here. And, and I think there's a, there's, there's a lot to learn from, from John's story. You know, it actually goes back to Malcolm's question, which is interesting. You know, John built his company of 30 employees and in his own admission was like super flat, right? It was like him and some, some doers, but there was, there wasn't that management layer. And I think, he was he did well to get to 30 employees. I mean, many entrepreneurs kind of run out of time of the day bandwidth at you know 10 or 15 employees, maybe 20 if 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 they haven't built the management team, and and that's one of those big hurdles that a lot of people are like, you know, what I just I just don't have it in me. Like if we go back to story number one, Ben Kelly, he reached a dozen employees, and he was like, you know, like I, I don't have I don't have the the, the chops to build out a management team to take this thing to 50. Um, and so I think John was in, in a little bit of like no man's land where he had 30 employees, but he, he was really focused on profitability. And so while he got the profitability, he really craved, which was 50% profit margins, five, zero percent profit margins. He didn't necessarily have the quality of life associated with that, so he was working all kinds of hours and eventually got sick. So I think it's a cautionary tale, and there is that. I think there's that there's that natural sort of decision you need to make. It's probably somewhere in the 10 to 20 employee range, where you're like, okay, I, I built something, probably got a little bit of value, I could sell it, or certainly probably bring it, you know, sell it to a private equity group and and, and continue to own it. And, and let someone else sort of help me scale to the next, to, to the 40, 50, 60 employees. Um, or I could probably just sit here at 10 or, or 15 employees and, and plateau and just have a lifestyle business. Or I could swallow hard and, and make the changes needed, knowing that in the short term, I'm probably going to take a hit on profitability and, and, and just kind of suck it up and know that that's, that's likely to be the outcome and, and know that on the other side of the uh, of the the kind of chasm, if you will, there is a uh, a rainbow. And so, in John's case, he he kind of didn't do that. He he got to 30 employees, but but didn't hire the team. And uh, I wrote an article about it after I did the interview, and I I, I kind of used the parallel of the Tour de France. Are you are you a bike racer at all, Jeremy? Like, do you know anything about the Tour de France? Do you follow that at all? Not really. No, really. Besides, you know, I've listened to interviews with Lance Armstrong before. Um, oh, yeah. So okay. I know a bit, but yes. Um, well, I love I watching. Know I would never want to do it because it sounds like grueling, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I had the opportunity to actually do a stage of the tour. It's called the oh, wow. it's a bike race, amateur bike race called the Le Tap de Tour. It literally translates to a stage of the tour. I did one and it was like 210 kilometers through the Pyrenees and it was like epically hard. And but it's right. given me a, an incredible sort of appreciation for what these athletes do. And if you know anything about cycling, uh, when they when they go up a mountain, the resistance, like the wind uh resistance they they encounter is like very very minimal it you know it, it because they're not going in a peloton down flat they're so but but even just going a little bit out of the peloton when they're climbing is just enough energy release to to make it harder for them and so these guys climb and 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 the way they do it is the top climbers will sprint ahead and and within sort of five or ten mm yards they'll get sucked back into the peloton and and the question a lay person would ask is like why on earth do they do that like why did they sprint ahead if they're only going to be caught just you know five or ten yards later and the reason they do it is they're effectively tenderizing their opponent they every time they sprint ahead that peloton has to dig deeper in order to bridge the gap and every time they do that they go into vo2 max overload or whatever it is and they reach a point where they can only just hold on and so after five or seven or ten sprints ahead finally the peloton can't bridge the gap can't make it because they've been tenderized and so i use that analogy in this article because for john he had gone through a tenderization this medical event where it made him much more likely to sell his company and to sell it not necessarily for the highest possible valuation he was really keen and, and and sort of motivated to get out so what he did is sold it he sold 70% of the company and carried 30% of his equity into a new entity and and so what does he do he he puts money in his jeans just like Ben Kelly but he's got a little bit of skin in the game but he doesn't have the stress of running his company anymore and so now he's got a business development role he knows he doesn't have to work again technically uh, or at least for a long time so he's got that sense of freedom associated with having some financial independence and he's got the 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 stress relief of not running the company day to day at the same time, he's still got some skin in the game if they're able to kind of continue to grow it. So I think it sounds like an advertisement for private equity. I, I don't mean it to be that way. Uh, but in both Ben and and John's case, it, it was right for them in the stage of their lives that that they they found themselves in. One for you know wanting to to kind of uh, solidify their family financial situation, but in John's case, it was more of a medical requirement. So I think you know hopefully. When our next conversation, Jeremy, that we won't have to talk about COVID uh, so much. I, but I do think over the last two years, you know, this pandemic has tenderized a lot of business owners, right? Like there's a lot of businesses out there um, that, I mean, in particular, anything dealing with the public, you know, direct to consumer, any like rest, obviously consulting, restaurants, anything where you have a consumer facing role, they've been devastated. And it's been, just incredibly stressful to go through this sort of like roller coaster that is the pandemic and so i think what we're finding is that there are a lot of business owners now who have been tenderized to the point where they're like yeah i'm you know i might not get what i you know thought i was going to get two years ago or what my buddy got for his business but you know for me right now in my stage i you know i just want to i want i don't i can't stress about it anymore and and i think there's a lot of that out there right now yeah so we have a question from Ann, and she said, when I sold my small business for its assets to my largest competitor, I took a four-year earnout based on a minimum purchase price. Um, unfortunately, there was no growth over the years, and my acquirer went out of business. On top of the agreed upon minimum purchase price, I kept my positive working capital. Could this working capital amount be considered in the overall purchase price and then she kind of goes on to say i was dissatisfied with the ultimate minimum purchase price i received but if i factor in being able to keep the working capital that makes what came out within my jeans actually more appealing 
You know, and I, I don't mean to dodge your question, but this probably is is technical enough and has a, enough kind of moving parts associated with it that you really probably want to get a professional legal opinion on on that. I, again, I don't I don't want to tell you something and have you you know go off and 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 use it uh, as as uh, as gospel. And I yeah. think there's just too much. Uh, at stake for you personally in this in this deal. So, look, working capital for those of you, and this may be taking it up a, a little bit more generally, is is the second most important number to to think about in any agreement to sell your company. Of course, the, the most important number is is the valuation on on the deal, and and what you are going to to be paid for your company. But there is this very uh, uh, important second number in most term sheets, most uh, stock uh, share purchase agreements, which is basically how much cash you need to leave in the company the day you hand over the keys. And, um, and, and getting really clear with an acquirer about that is important because for a lot of small businesses and, and, and you may, you may have done this for years, you know, we, we run our companies profitably. We're not in a hurry to pay taxes, any more taxes than we need to. And so we just keep it as retained earnings in our company, right? And that retained earnings pot of honey becomes our sort of, uh, you know, um, our, our rainy day fund it, uh, and it, it, and it becomes just cash that we have in the business. Now, you may take the view, well, that's money I've earned over the years. I've made profit and therefore that's my money to scrape out of my company before I go to sell it. That You may be able to make that case to an acquirer. An acquirer may take the view, well, that's the working capital. It's in the business. It was in the business when we looked at it. It was in the business when we valued the company. So it needs to stay in the business when you pass over the keys to us. That's an area of interpretation that needs to be worked out well in advance of you agreeing to any letter of intent. And so being clear what that working capital calculation is at the time of transaction is going to be very important. It may have big downstream impacts for the ultimate take home of selling your company. So again, and specifically, I'd seek legal advice on your specific issue, but but anybody listening who is sort of entertaining a, a letter of intent or any sort of offer, I think you, what you're really going to want to zero in on is, is that working capital calculation. And if it's not defined, if it's not being clearly stated, that's a bit of a red flag as well, because it, it suggests that the acquirer is using a, a fairly superficial or vague letter of intent to lock you in. Uh, most letters of intent, as we've talked about before in the show, have a no shop clause where you can't negotiate with this, another company while you complete due diligence with the acquiring uh, potential acquirer. They have the rights to walk away, but you don't have the rights to negotiate with anybody else. And so if you agree to a letter of intent, you give up your negotiating leverage before solidifying your working capital agreement. Um, that can be just a, a recipe for undermining your negotiating leverage to get that working capital uh, agreement sorted out. So again, if it's vague or it's like, oh, we'll work out, we'll we'll think about that later. Uh, I would say, no, you know, let's let's figure it out now. Let's come up with a formula. Let's agree now what that's going to be. So I, I think that's just uh, uh, more information on on the working capital calculation, which again is the second most important number in any LOI. That's valuable to know, John. Do you find that? There is a range, like we want to keep one to like um you know do they usually say I want to keep one to two months or I want to keep one month? How do they f end up figuring out what that yeah, is? Because I could see if I'm selling, I don't want to be the bank out at zero. I want to be able to fund some, you know, months. But is there yeah. a range? Yeah, it depends a little bit on the size of the company. Like a very small company will usually be sold on a debt-free, cash-free basis. So like you're going to hand it over to us without any debt. And at the same time, you can strip out all the cash. That's a pretty common for a retail type of small, small company. In a larger company, it's often a percentage of AR. So, you know, especially in a B2B business where there may be hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in accounts receivable when you hand over your company, you're like, those are sales I've made. Uh, we sent an invoice. Uh, but because I sent the invoice to GE or IBM, they're going to pay me in 90 days. Well, I, you know, like I need a, I need that money. And then you can get into a, a you know, a discussion around like what, what, what working uh, effort needs to be put into that, that invoice, that, that contract, that account, 
during that time? How much of that have we already paid and done? And so it, that, oftentimes that'll come down to like a percentage of AR. Um, but you know, uh, the what it's less important to to agree to any one formula. It's more important to make sure the formula is clear to both parties that you all agree it's either cash free, debt free, or there's some some working capital formula that that you've agreed to. So it's not you know, it's not subjective. It's not something you're trying to figure out three days before close. And says, thank you. That helps. Um, this has been great. I, I just want to encourage everyone to go to Built to Sell. Sign up for the newsletter as you, you can get on the webinar and please ask all the questions. That's what we're here for for the live. Um, and you could check out all episodes of builttosell.com on builttosell.com slash radio. Or if you want to check out, John mentioned a few times about the SOPs, you can go to builttosell.com slash SOP and check out their ebook. Uh, John, any other places we should point people towards or, or mention? No, all roads, roads just lead to Built to Sell. So yeah, builttosell.com. I think there's a button that says free gifts. If you download those, you'll be you'll be opted in to receive invitations to the live uh, show and you can ask any questions you want. Um, it's been great. So Malcolm, Susan, Ann, I can't remember who else asked questions, but uh, I hope they, they were helpful. As always, Jeremy, I, uh, I'm grateful for you being my co-pilot here and, and, and hosting uh, as always. So thank you for doing it. Great. We'll see you next time. We will see you all soon. Take care. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com.